Ultra-fast telescope maker and visual observer Mel Bartels joins us on episode 331 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone who enjoys going out under the stars. So I'm going to begin by reading a brief bio of Mel, and then we will begin our conversation. Mel Bartles' articles about telescope making and observations have appeared in Sky and Telescope magazine, including the recent December 2022 issue. He has appeared as a guest speaker at astronomy conferences around the world, and his telescope walkabouts are a highlight of the Oregon Star Party. He created the first popular computerized control of telescopes using stepper motors that was among the first open source software and hardware projects. He ran the first ATM, which is amateur telescope making, listserv for six years, which served as a meeting place for other amateurs. The International Astronomical Union named asteroid 17823 Bartels in recognition of his contributions to amateur astronomy. Now retired, Mel began as a jazz and classical trumpet player, then segued into software development, software architecture, and ultimately management. More recently, Mel began working on thin, highly curved, very thin meniscus mirrors for very fast telescopes. He's written many online calculators, which I have personally used, and devised new mirror tests. But Mel is not just a telescope builder, he is an avid observer as well. He uses his short focal ratio telescopes to observe very faint objects, finding objects like integrated flux nebulae and galactic cirrus. He records his observations by sketching them on paper. Mel also inspires and mentors many telescope makers, and we received several requests to have him on the show, to say the least. So welcome to the show, Mel. Great to have you this morning. Well, hi. It's great to be here. And you happen to catch me in my observer mode, having just finished a couple of telescopes. But I'll probably get back to my telescope making mode here at some point. Well, it's uh, really nice to have you on the show. And Maybe we'll just start with a simple question about how you first became interested in astronomy and observational astronomy in particular. Well, I'm a space kid. I grew up in the 60s. It was the Mercury program and the Gemini and the Apollo and those wonderful science fiction movies like Forbidden Planet and even movies that were cringeworthy, like Teenagers from Space that made it to Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> Do you see all the lines holding the UFOs there? And they always go to the same cave. I've always wanted to find a cave where they film at, because that cave is a source of all these aliens. But my parents bought me a four-inch TASCO reflector for a science project in grade school. They bought me a microscope and chemistry set and lots and lots of water rockets. Because you know, when you launch rockets, they don't last very long. So you got to be building them all the time. And they took me to the downtown Portland, Oregon library, where I got to read all the books I wanted about rockets and space and telescopes. And I got to dream big. So it was a wonderful time. The other thing happening in the 60s was this huge diversity of innovation and ideas and telescopes. You go to a regional conference and there'd be scopes of all sorts of different creations and thoughts and so forth. So that was very inspiring too. So as to when I really became interested, I seem to have been born with this. I recall looking at the night sky as a kid and I knew that those stars were suns, but they were so bright, they would just burn into my eye and I would just keep looking and looking. And even today, when I look through a scope, I still have that sensation of these stars being just so intensely bright and awe-inspiring. So that's, that's my start. 
do you still build rockets or or did you build rockets like into your later I years? I do. And uh, if you look off there in the corner, okay, you can yeah. see some that have survived all these years. <laughs> That's that's great. I I also as a, a child uh, did some model rocketry. My parents um, bought me some kit, kits for Christmas presents, and uh, occasionally I think you know I need to reinvigorate that hobby. I, I should probably get back into flying some rockets, but so far I haven't. Maybe one day soon. Uh, that Tasco Mel is that was that a reflector or was that a, a refractor? It was a reflector on an equatorial mount. Okay. Although our school did have this nice four-inch unitron refractor. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I read those Sam Brown All About Telescopes books and uh, lots of credits to Sam Brown. He was an incredible illustrator. Uh, but still, it was quite mysterious how to align the equatorial. And I, I learned how to do all that. Although years later, uh, I couldn't figure out why the stars were double tracking in the wrong direction and it turned out I had lined the declination axis. So it's still confusing. And in fact, we had here in the local town, one of these annual bring your scope in and we'll tune it up and show you how to use it. And I have to say the most perplexing issue that people faced was uh, why do I have to align this part of the scope up toward a star we can't even see yet? So yeah, equatorial four inch Tasco reflector and uh, with a 20 millimeter and eight millimeter eyepiece and, uh, and Mars looked very tiny. <laughs> and uh, I figured I could go in two directions. I could either say this hobby is impossible or I could say, I'm gonna need a bigger telescope. So I went in the latter <laughs> direction. <laughs> it seems inevitable for all amateur astronomers at some point. Well, I, I must've been born with aperture fever too. Because one of the reasons I got into making my own is that my parents on a blue collar salary could not afford the scopes I was really wanting. And you know, that four inch Tasco came with that six by 30 finder. And if you ever use those, you know how frustrating they can be. Mm -hmm. And in the back of the Edmund catalog in those years was this eight inch, but it wasn't just the eight inch aperture. It was that it came with an eight by 50 finder. And I almost wanted that finder more than I wanted aperture. So I could finally find the stuff instead of spending all night trying to look for it. You know, the first time I found the ring, I found it right off the bat. And I thought, okay, this is going to be really easy. I bring my family out. And of course, this drifted out. And about an hour and a half later, after they'd all given up and gone back in to watch TV, I found it. But there was no one around. When I shouted out, I found it again, you know, so yeah, finders matter too. Yeah, for sure. I have a, a three inch Tasco refractor from the sixties on the shelf behind me here. And, and probably the first thing I did was replace the finder with just a simple red dot because yeah, those, uh, those old ones were, you know, I think that was a five by 25 on this one and it, it really didn't do anything. Right. So we have the tail rad, the red dot finder revolution these things kind of taken for granted today, but when they happen, they really change the hobby. And I'd say we probably found twice as many objects as we ever could find before. I started with optical finders on my eight inch uh, Newtonian that I had. It came within, I think an eight by 50. And then it was a straight through. And then I, you know, switched to a, a right angle, correct image finder, which I thought was revolutionary. 
But then I put a Telrad on it and that just changed everything for me. And now I really don't enjoy optical finders at all. I just prefer the red dot to get me kind of into the area that I want to be in and then just to the eyepiece. But I suppose too, with refractors, uh, with a wider field of view, that is a little easier to use that style or approach as well. Well, another issue too, is that you get used to a scope and then mm -hmm. half after your fever, you get the bigger scope, but it comes with a narrower field of view. Man, oh man, trying to find stuff, even though the field of view is just a little bit narrow, is just impossible and you get frustrated because it doesn't take much to make it difficult. The other issue too, is on the bigger scopes, you can't often get your eye right up against that tail rad finder. And so you mm -hmm. have to stand back a bit. So you know you have to get your eye positioned, and there are some new uh, zero power finders out there that have uh, much larger surfaces to look through. So you can actually stand back at the bottom of the scope and look up and see the uh, circles projected into the sky. So that helps too. Mm -hmm. The other thing, it also changes how you find. So I do star hop, but most of the time I do asterism finding. I'll know ahead of time that there's well this pentagram of stars and three of them are aligned like this and two are bright and I'll look for that in the sky having just aimed approximately with my zero power finder until I get that in the eyepiece and then I'll go okay I know the objects over here so it, it can change how you search for objects too but then I'm one of these people who spend two hours per object so you know if I can just get there I'm, I'm happy and that's it you know um, uh, this kind of cursory where you zoom through a bunch of objects can be a really fascinating way to observe, but it takes me 15, 20 minutes just to uh, begin to get acquainted with the object and begin to even understand what I might be able to see there. So I'm, I've become a very slow observer. Mm -hmm. um, I want to touch on that, uh, but maybe just to circle back to the the beginning of that statement about, you know, using red dots and some of the challenges with that. Do you ever um, use binoculars at the telescope to help you orient and, and find things in the sky? No, uh, we have the usual slew of binoculars and my wife actually likes to use them quite a bit, but um, they don't give me much magnification. Mm -hmm. So I tend not to use them and I've not found much help at the eyepiece. Um, you know, my 30 inch, for example, has a six inch um, scope sitting on it. So if I have to, I'll, I'll use a six inch to uh, <laughs> <The> six inch <laughs> finder. <laughs> well, so you have to stage up, you know, yeah, on Steve yeah. Swayze's 40 inch, he had a 12 inch finder. And I always thought that uh, he was like, well, you know, you got to proportion these because otherwise you know, if it's too small, you can't find stuff when you're up on a 16 foot orchard ladder. But, um, but the other cool thing was that when you're standing in line waiting to go up the 16 foot ladder, you can look through this 12 inch and that 12 inch was no slouch. <laughs> so, so there's always that too. Yeah, that's fascinating. You, you mentioned the, the observing an object for extended periods of time. Do you feel that you, you, you sort of almost like a camera spend more acquisition time on an object that you start to bring in more detail or is the time spent, uh, sketching or maybe just walk us through that a little bit. If you, if you don't mind, Mel, I'm, I'm quite interested in your style there. I seem to have slowed down as years have gone by. So one of the 
surprising aspects that just startled me so much was when I got into these fast, thin meniscus mirrors. And that first night, the views were transformative. I was seeing stuff I could have never seen before. You know, I started with the Pleiades because they thought, well, this would be an easy object to get the red dot finder aligned on. And uh, I saw this smear in there around the edge of the field of view. And I thought, oh, no, what's gone wrong with the scope that I just built? What's wrong with the mirror? But then I bumped the scope and the smear moved. And this transformation went on in my eye. And I suddenly became aware of the entire field of view from edge to edge. And I saw that the Pleiades was surrounded by this bubble of nebulosity. You know, we discovered the Pleiades bubble. So, I began to see that it was about the entire field of view and that really slowed me down. For instance, around the dumbbell, there is interstellar medium or galactic surface. This is right there, you just have to see it. But I spent years and years looking at the dumbbell and didn't see it. Sure. So looking around and trying to purposefully see all that's there, but also when you sketch as a way to observe, you have to declare, does the nebulosity go there? Is it really bright here? Is it sharp edged over there? And it takes a lot of time to, to go and do that. I usually have to go back a second night to confirm and answer all these confusing questions I have. But the other is that I discovered that I was building the visual memories of these objects. And that when I would start looking at the object again, I would begin where I last left off. So in my mind, I have these memories of hundreds of thousands of objects. I can look at it and I go, okay, the ring nebula. I know what the central star looks like. I know the colorization around the edge. And I know that there's an outer ring and there's a galaxy out there. But it took a lot of years to observe and build up that image so that I could start from that point the next time. But even so, it takes a long time to reorient, to uh, begin to see these things and get them in your mind. By the way, there's an interstellar medium galactic cirrus going right by the ring too. Yeah, I'd never seen that before, but it's pretty obvious. So it just takes a while to consciously become aware of this. And then the other thing I like to do is move the scope a lot to build up a virtual picture that's far larger than the field of view. And as I look through the eyepiece, yes, I can see the field stop, but in my mind, I'm really picturing a much larger object that extends far beyond that. And I move the scope around to kind of refresh that and get that back into my mind. So all that takes a lot of time. And um, I'll do two objects a night. Uh, and that's the speed I go at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mel. That's um, kind of in, reinvigorating in terms of looking at a number of objects that, you know, that you know myself and I'm sure a number of our listeners are familiar with. You know, you mentioned the ring. Uh, I think most amateur astronomers have looked at that many, many times, but probably more so just looking at the object of interest, right? Being being the ring and not necessarily the field. And uh, I, I really, I really like that you said that, you know, because there, there's often much more than just the object of interest in that field of view. So, you know, trying to take all that in is is a great approach. Right. And I enjoy walking over to people's scopes and saying, oh, what you on? And I go, what well, did you know uh, M15 has this galactic cirrus ISN right next to it? And they'll go, oh, wow. And they'll go, that's really bright. And they'll go, how did I not notice that? And I'll go, how did I not notice it for 25 <laughs> years? You know, so 
So there's so much to see. And even though we spend all this time looking at it, um, there's still more to see in that object. And so you come back to it. I come back to it with a different scope. The object looks different or a different night. How many times have we gone out and observed? And then when we finally get that night of superb transparency, which happens quite infrequently, but somehow it sticks in our mind. And I don't advocate observing or building scopes for that one really rare night. But when it does, you just really remember that. And uh, it just becomes this, wow, I had no idea the object looked like this. And I sure hope I have a visual memory of that. And I sketched it to help remember my memory of that um, because I'm not gonna see that like that again for maybe years to come, so. I don't know if this is a fair question, Mel, but I'm, I'm gonna ask it anyway. <laughs> um, do you find yourself looking uh, at say new objects that you haven't looked at before, or do you find yourself gravitating more towards, you know, I'll keep using the ring example, uh, you know, an object you've looked at many times, but trying to take in things maybe you just haven't noticed within the field or within the object. Right. So earlier I mentioned that I'm in observing mode right now because I finished my scope projects, but I'll be back in the telescope making mode. So when I'm in observing mode, I am absolutely torn between, oh, well, let's look at Orion Nebula. And it is so stunning and beautiful. And there's always something new to see there versus, oh, well, we should look for this little whatever over here that someone found. And it's a cute little commentary type object. So yeah, you're just torn. And the time under the dark skies is so precious. But for me, when I get on an object or a couple objects, that's it for the night, I'll try to relax by looking at a couple of big, bold, bright, and beautiful objects. But even then I can't help it. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, look at that extension off there. You know, so uh, I, I try to do a little of both, whatever happens to suit me. Lately, because I have the 30 inch now, I've gotten into looking at tidal disruptions on galaxies all by chance, just because I went and looked at some and I go, whoa, what are these faint extensions? And so, I, I kind of segued off into that. I didn't mean to, it isn't why I built the scope, but I've gotten into that lately. So now I'm out searching for tidal streams. But uh, yeah, it's there's so much to see. Um, it cannot be wrong to look at any one thing to the exclusion of something else. I really like the idea for this so juxtaposition that you built fast telescopes and then began slow observing with the fast telescopes. I like, it's a really nice picture. Well, I never thought of that. That's interesting. Uh, I was afraid I'm just getting older and slowing down. <laughs> You're just getting started. But, you know, uh, but, but there is a place for these cursories. One of the great nights of observing was the night we saw a hundred globular clusters. And we probably only saw 50, but it was the first digital semicircles that came out. And they came from Roger Tattel. And we attach it to a 14 inch and we go, well, how can we use these? Well, this is width through all the globular clusters in Sagittarius and so forth that we could possibly see. And as we did that, and we just went bang, 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 we began to see this incredible contrast of condensation, the number of stars and patterns of the brighter stars and colors and sizes. And we kind of well, looked at each other as much as you can in the dark. And we went back to the eyepiece. And by the end of the evening, you just got this 
impression of a tremendous variety of globulars in the sky that you wouldn't have gotten any other way. So when I finally did see Omega Centauri in the big scope in Southern skies, <laughs> it's extended way beyond the field of view. It was like, okay, I've seen hundreds of globulars. I know that this is a globular beyond globulars. And now we actually know from astronomers that some of these globulars are from other galaxies that have merged with our own Milky Way billions of years ago. You know, for instance, I was just reading that Messier 2, um, it actually came from another uh, galaxy. <laughs> so uh, we could add that dimension to it too. So I'm a fan of doing these comparison, uh, quick survey type stuff um, from time to time too. Uh, that could be a lot of fun also but I don't particularly build up a visual memory of the objects. So I always tend to go back and, and do that slow observing again. Yeah, I gotta admit that I've, I've kind of learned, learned this as well. I, when I go out, I went out the other, spoke three weeks ago now during the last, uh, not the previous new moon, but the new moon prior. And I decided I was gonna observe, I think 10 objects up in Leo. And I ended up getting three sketches off, I think. And that was it. I was just done after three objects and three hours. I was just done. So. And it's tiring mentally. Yeah. I always have a bigger list than I can possibly accomplish. And I used to get frustrated. I have a list of six objects that I only got to see two. But I've learned that that's the pace I go at. And the other thing, too, is that when it's been, as it's been extraordinarily cloudy here this winter, um, you kind of forget how to use the scope and, you know, what end do you look through? And when you first get under the stars and you look again, you go, oh my gosh, my visual skills have atrophied. I have to learn to see again, like really quickly because <laughs> here I am now. And so uh, it, it takes a while to get your observing legs back underneath you when you've had this hiatus for a while. So, so there's always that time too, to kind of get your eye brain going again and get zeroed in on the ability to see whatever it is, faint stuff or faint stars or big stuff or, or whatever. So there's always that reacquainting aspect that goes on too. I'm thinking maybe we can, are, are you folks ready to move on to the telescope making portion of, of the conversation or did you have any, any other uh, questions about things, Shane, before we move on to that part? Yeah, yeah, telescope building. Um, let's talk about that. So I have to ask, there's a little... Every every time I talk to an observer now, uh, we were talking um, with uh, Eric Clausius a few, uh, I guess, about a month ago, and he talked about his biggest telescope disaster. And and now every time I talk to an observer, I have to say, what was your biggest telescope disaster, Mel, or or what was the worst thing that you've done to a telescope? Yeah, so uh, I may have dropped a piece of glass once or twice, but. Um, Probably the worst thing you could do to a telescope is leave it neglected. And I feel so bad because I build telescopes. I build them slowly, but they do pile up. And, uh, you know, there's this beautiful 10-inch F2.7 behind me. I haven't used it since I uh, completed the 16-inch F2.9, which I built as an intermediate scope after I built the 30, uh, kind of practicing and working more on these thin, really fast mirrors to gain skill before I try to leap up and, and do the 42s that are sitting right behind me. And um, so, yeah, a neglecting scope. So I try to get them into the hands of amateurs who appreciate them and use them, but um, you know, 
when a scope sits there neglected in the corner is kind of a sad thing. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, that was going to be one of my first questions is what, what are those blanks and what, what is that? Is that a mirror grinding table or something? They're on, they're on a big, it looks like you have two meniscuses on a yellow something. Okay. That's a pretty big machine. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I built a machine for the large mirrors. Uh, I've had machines before I built um, the polishing drag is just so tremendous and yeah you can do it for 15 20 minutes maybe an hour if you're a hero but you gotta do this for hour after hour night after night and um, it just becomes this herculean task so you need a machine to help you on on the polishing particularly so how did you get started uh, building telescopes like the telescopes that you're building they are they're very different than other telescopes that that most of us have have seen. Do you have a background in carpentry or other woodwork, woodworking or mechanical skills? Or like, how did you get started in all this? Well, I, I kind of grew up with it. My dad was a carpenter on contractor and uh, he let me use his tools, which I understand now you probably shouldn't let your kids use tools. And I may have wrecked one or two, but he didn't yell at me. Uh, he probably should have. And so I learned the wood side. I have had amateur friends who came from the metal side and we would have these big bets, you know, like, okay, uh, you're gonna end up with a piece of metal on your scope before I ever put a piece of wood on my scope. And then, you know, um, but my family couldn't afford that Edmund eight inch in the back of the catalog. And then when I started pushing glass in junior high and high school, I realized that this was a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's hard to explain. It's something about your hands and the feel of the glass and the sound uh, when you're in fine grinding, uh, this just beautiful, smooth, quiet action going on. And then when you go into polishing and parabolizing, it becomes this mental exercise of getting the glass just right to a couple of millionths of an inch. And um, so you have this tremendous satisfaction physically from your hands and then your brain. And then you use this glass and you build a scope around it and you go out and you look through that. So it's a feeling that's hard to find words for, but it's immensely satisfying to go and look. And then when you do that, you see, oh, I want to do more of this. And maybe it's more aperture or maybe, you know what, this scope needs to be lighter because this is getting the drag carrying it out. So you have the capability to refine that scope. And at some point you have to give up refining that scope and just simply start building another one. And so as time goes on, uh, you tend to go off on unique pathways uh, that you travel based on this feedback from observing and sketching, because I sketch to observe. It helps me see the object more and it brings back visual memories my sketches are not works of art, they're designed to help me observe. And so uh, I built these scopes and I observe and I go, okay, I want more of that. So I'll build the next scope to be more of that. And as time goes on, you find yourself drifting off in unique circles, um, but that's what it takes to give me the views I want. And uh, like I say, it's, it's very satisfying to do that. Now that's at the end point, when you're in the middle, and you're having to go back to spherical because you got to turn edge again or you over -parabolize. 
or the worst ever, I cut this piece of wood six times before I measured it right. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm sitting there with the tape measure in my hand. It's two and a half inches. What is wrong with marking two and a half? But I would mark it three and a half or inch. I just was not a good day. <laughs> so that part could be very frustrating and I have no patience. And so it gets to be this, this struggle, you know, but you come out the other side all glorious and the harps are, are strumming and everything and you get to look <laughs> through it. But then as you look and you observe and you enjoy that and people come over and go, wow, that's a great view. Pretty soon that little whatever on your shoulder is saying, you should build another scope pretty soon. <laughs> you have forgotten about all the things that could go wrong and all the frustrations happened to you. You don't remember any of that, you know, and you go, yeah, I don't remember any of that. And then of course, when you get into it, you go, oh yeah, I remember all of this. <laughs> the glass as devil. Time, yeah, but as time goes on, I just have gone off and in really unique directions, just each time out of necessity, you know, like I do wired spiders and I do these hyper thin meniscus mirrors now. And I do these really lightweight telescopes made from quarter inch Baltic birch plywood. And, and I use three axis mounts and, and all this stuff. And it just kind of came about organically from the whole observing sketching. And I want to do something different with my next scope. But it was all empowered because I found out as a kid, I could build scopes. And the fact I had to, if I wanted to afford them. I like the way that you phrased sort of like almost that inner peace that you get as you're getting into that fine grinding process. It, it reminds me of, of another telescope maker I was fortunate to spend some time with, which uh, of, of course was John Dobson. And uh, I didn't know, I, I'm thinking that you you were developing your telescope making skills really before he came onto the scene though. So I'm not sure, did he have any influence in your telescope building or or designs now i want people to know that this is not a setup question you're asking that innocently yeah yeah okay <laughs> uh, this should be good so profoundly changed my life uh i still can't believe it and this all started when my friend rob uh, goes hey there's a newspaper article someone's going to have 18 to 24 inch scopes at crater lake national park we should go down and see it and it's like yeah, I don't want to look through a two foot long refractor. And he goes, no, no, it says 24 inch telescope. And I go, there is no such thing. Um, it cannot possibly be, you, you know, uh, newspapers are, they're full of mistakes. Go, no, no, we should go. So we go down there and we finally round a corner, spectacular scenery, but do I care about any of that? No, because in front of me is this monster cardboard telescope that sticks out I don't know, 12, 13 feet into this guy. It was 24 inch up, 6.5, I think. And wiry guy next to it. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it to this day. It was so crude, but it was so elegant in its simplicity. And before Rob even stopped the van, I had thrown open the door and I was just running with my arms <laughs> out toward the scope. And I just totally accepted it because we got in line and we looked and we listened to his cosmology lecture on steady state and all that was was fine. But to us, it was like, come on, son, set, just set, get dark. We want to look. <laughs> and then about 11 o'clock when the crowd thins out, uh, John comes over and goes, OK, you two use the scope just in the morning, point it away from the sun. A 24 inch mirror can fry a lot of stuff. And he just <laughs> walks away. And I'm looking at Rob like now. 
at the local observatory, we couldn't even get the time of day to hardly even, you know, step on the grounds. But here's this guy, let us use a 24 inch scope. And speaking of visual memory, the first object we looked at was M103. And I still have this memory of, of the stunning view. The stars were sharp and pinpoint and the colors were incredible. Now that's the open and, uh, cluster up in Cassiopeia, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, um, and it fit perfectly into this field of view. And so, you know, all the way home, I say, I got to have a 24, I got to have a 24. And Rob pulled over once and said, you know, you're just going to have to uh, get home on your own because I'm not going to listen to you talk like this. We've got <laughs> of drive time. And so I tell you, a year later, though, I had that 24-inch corning piece of glass and I was grinding it and it just changed my life. I just accepted, uh, but it was at such a different way. We had to learn how to build telescopes, how should I say this, precisely imprecise, because there was a lot of elegance in Dobson's design. And at first we would try to add too much precision in, and that isn't what John was about. You know, it's like, well, where are the adjustments on your scope? And John would say, scope doesn't need adjustments. You know, why would you want to do that when you have a line of people waiting to look through the eyepiece? And uh, go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. How do you make a scope without adjustments? And he goes, well, like this. <laughs> and so it took time to learn how to make uh, a precisely imprecise telescope, but it was a profound uh, impact on me. And my life has never been the same because, you know, if I had aperture fever lusting after an eight inch, well, now you know, it was over, you know, right? It was just it, over. It was over, and it was fatal. And uh, yeah, so um, but you know, after I got my twenty-four up and going, I used it for so many years, and I became convinced that twenty-four, maybe a thirty, was the limit because of seeing, and I could calculate that the airy disk was visible, and I just became convinced that that was the ultimate size, and it was such a mistake. And so here I am waiting in line to look through Steve Swayze's 40 inch and first night. And people are coming down the 16 foot orchard ladder and they're going, I can't believe it. It's just incredible. I think they were looking at NGC 7331 and people are saying, this is like Andromeda in a smaller scope. And these are people I respected. There's no reason for me to accuse them of uh, exaggerating or or whatever, but I just couldn't believe it. There's such a bias of seeing as believing. Well, if I don't see I don't. And um, but when I went up that ladder, <laughs> this is incredible. This is unbelievable. All you people waiting in line, you know, cast aside your doubts. But I tell you, by the time I came down that ladder, I had reformulated my idea of aperture and what you could see. Uh, there he was on like 750 power and the stars were 10 point how could that be so i came up with this you know theory. by the time i came down the ladder i had it all worked out in my mind i guarantee you and uh, but credit to steve swayze for being so bold and creative to uh, make this monster scope where the upper end was actually bigger than the bed he was sleeping in he had no place to put it so when it showed he showed me the scope in progress and we would take the 40 inch and wheel it down the carpeted hallway of his uh, brother's uh, offices because it took such a long distance to test the mirror and uh, showed me this upper end sitting on his bed, occupying the entire bed. And I, I go, <laughs> Steve, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, that was the other transformative moment too. And they both involved lots of aperture. 
And that's not to say I don't appreciate my small scopes, but um, holy moly. Uh, yeah, so John Dobson. But he also did more than just make those sidewalk scopes. He also was the first to uh, experiment and learn how to do large uh, pitch laps. And he also brought back the technique of doing final figuring with star testing. He brought back the idea that scopes should just work, that you don't need all these adjustments, they just get in the way. That simplicity, the scope should be fit to a purpose. And it's okay if the scope doesn't track because the next person waiting in line to look is only going to be a minute or two and you can readjust it. And, um, and it should be about the view and, uh, and all this stuff. So he came with all this stuff kind of worked out. He spent the years um, uh, improving and so on. Someone else who just kind of went off on their own and, and did their own thing and came back with something that was so startling be different that people just didn't know what to make of it but yeah i just accepted it for what it was and getting a chance to look through the eyepiece was yeah one of the big transformative moments in my life i remember when i i'd spent a weekend with john dobson uh year, years ago of course and unfortunately he passed away in like 2014 or something like that and I remember asking him how we came up with the Dobsonian design, the, the, the beautiful simplicity. And I remember anticipating, because if you've heard him talk about cosmology, you know how, how he can go on at length. Um, I was anticipating this long, eloquent, eloquent reply. And he simply said, I was just simply too stupid to make anything complicated. <laughs> that was it. That was his answer. Right. But um but he had this uh, genius of working with simple materials. And if you ever have come up with an invention, an idea, you look back on it and you go, well, that's obvious. Um, but it took months to years to, to really work this out and refine it and get it to work. You know, um, we call it product development today, but John Dobson was an early example of that. And the Dobsonian telescope could have been invented um, back in the 1950s and even in the 1930s. And why wasn't it? Well, uh, you know, we could discuss that. It, you know, maybe it was someone like a John Dobson who come along and was so constrained uh, by his financial um, impositions and what he was trying to do. And, and he really just wanted to see the universe. And, and he didn't really think that the uh, metal scopes of the era um, as, as wonderful and refined as they were or what he was really uh, trying to get at. And, um, and he found this glass and he experimented with it and it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And uh, it took years to figure out how to make these mirrors out of those porthole pieces of glass and so on. So, uh, you know, he kind of showed up with this uh, hurricane force at uh, Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. Um, all finished and kind of with his refined kind of crude product, but, but it was many years in the making to get there and to come to that simplicity. So I've always super respected that. Speaking about uh, novel telescope designs, you've come up with uh, a variation of the Dobsonian design and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I believe you're calling it the tri-dob or triaxial design. Can you, can you talk a little bit about this different design for uh, the Dobsonian trust tube? Right. So when 
the original first standardized Dobsonian came out. It was by Bob Kestner and Doug Berger and um, Earl Watts. And they standardized on 16 inch F5, uh, made from porthole. You might remember the old um, hinge tailgates and the sonotubes tubes that slid in. Yeah. So this was a huge innovation and Richard Berry publicized this in telescope making. And that's when the amateur world kind of took the John Dobson design and said, no, this is ours. We are going to use this as amateurs. And yes, we like to do sidewalk astronomy, John, and that's great that you do that, but we're going to make these scopes for, for us. And then uh, a Swedish amateur came along and said, well, those heavy sonal tubes, and they were really heavy. You could actually substitute these uh, truss tubes for that. And then this huge revolution uh, took off. So with that in mind, I'm looking at the upper end and I've been doing single ring upper ends inspired by some of the professional scopes uh, since um, 92. And that was working well and people seem to like that and they're starting to adopt that. And I was looking at, well, you know, if I'm gonna shrink this ring further, it's gonna be kind of compromised, what can I do? And I thought, well, I'm gonna just turn it into a triangle. And so that's how the idea started was a triangular upper end, it can't deflect. Of course, you know, I did a wire spider, but then if you're gonna do that, that calls for six truss tubes coming back. And then that calls for a triangular mirror box. And if you do that, then why don't you just put the altitude rims such that they're on that forward Teflon bearing. And then the back two altitude rims, oh, they could be condensed into a tail fan. And that preserves this idea of uh, triangles all the way through the design. And I maintain that good designs are ones that are beautiful in kind of a way that we can't come up with words. I don't mean polished metal or, or highly stained wood. I'm talking about something that you look at, like the Palomar 200 inch, that's beautiful. And, you, and everyone goes, yeah, that's a powerful looking, beautiful scope. So this tridop design came along as a result of uh, working on these triangles. And then later I got a chance at the Apache Point National Observatory to crawl around in a 3.5 meter scope. And guess what? They have a single tail fin in the back. So it's, you know, it's an idea that you know, has, has come up in the professional world too. So that's how the design came. And then I thought, oh, I can fold the altitude bearings. And, and it just lent to this really lightweight um, structure that um, came along with lots of added benefits. So that's how, how that one came about. So let's talk about these ultra fast telescopes. You've, you've built a number of them, I believe. I remember when this, this was coming out, I, I know eventually you wrote a Sky and Telescope article, but I remember I was just following this on, on your website as it was being developed, sort of almost in tandem with the ethos eyepiece. And you had done like a calculation showing the different circles and, and everything. I was really surprised. So you you kind of started, I think, with a, a 13 odd inch and then went to a six and and a 10 and different sizes like that before kind of scaling up. Can you tell us about like why would you make really small, fast telescopes when essentially a, a six inch F2.7 isn't a whole heck of a lot smaller than a six inch F5 and and like your whole design philosophy around building these small, fast, and then progressively larger, fast instruments. Right. So this all came at me with this huge jumble. First of all, I wasn't the first to do this, and I didn't think it was possible. You would put me in the crowd of skeptics who say, no, no, those mirrors won't work. 
you know, um, that's just crazy talk. I believe that. I said that until David Davis, probably 15 years ago, showed up at the Oregon Star Party telescope walkabout with his 16-inch F3, and the mirror is only three-eighths of an inch thick. And uh, of course, knowing David, um, and my experience with Steve Swayze, when someone who I really respect says, you know, this, there's something here, this, this works, you should take a look. So I took a look and I couldn't believe it. There's no astigmatism in this image. And I looked at David and you go, how did you do this? And he goes, well, it was easy and it was really hard. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna have to do this too. At the same time, Richard Schwartz in LA was experimenting with cellular mirrors. And even though he obtained a patent, came to the conclusion that they were just not really resilient enough. Micro fractures would occur, it was hard to support, and he just became dissatisfied with that. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, I have this curved front plate, you know, 13 inch, do you want it? And they go, sure, send it to me. I was gonna turn it into a cancer grain. And then at the same time in France, Frederick G um, sent me an email saying, hey, we're experimenting with these F3 telescopes and with a coma corrector, they actually work. And I really respect him. He's a serious observer. And if he says the stars are okay in the field, even though I, I can't believe it, I respect that. And I know it's to be true. So I put it all together and I experimented and I came out with this 13 inch F3, a thin mirror, not as thin as David's, but you know, first look um, through there, uh, through the eyepiece, I saw that this is quantitatively different. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to go off in this new direction, and I'm truly on my own with just a few other people who have done this and everyone else is doubters and that's fine. I, I totally get the, the bias there. Um, I need to get some experience. So I made the six and 10 inch, but then on first looks through the eyepiece, I go, wait a minute, these are serious views. When you get a five degree field with six inches of aperture, that's something I've never seen before. So it's not so much that the scopes are small, uh, is that the light throughput into your eye is so maximized across this monster field. And then I began to realize, oh yeah, there's all these thousands to hundreds of beautiful wide field objects that people just don't know much about. Like, do you know that there is a ring of Betelgeuse out there? A dark ring that surrounds it is one of the most amazing sights, but it takes like a five degree telescope to see this with decent aperture. Um, so I, I began realizing that here, this was a case where aperture didn't matter so much, but it was a combination of the coma correctors and wide field eyepieces and um, the knowledge. And of course I had to go out and get mirror tests for all this too. And, um, but I did all this in preparation for going bigger. At the same time, there's this group called the Altmaz Initiative founded by Russ Janay, Richard Berry, Howard Bandage, Dan Gray, and myself, the idea was to figure out a way to break through and get to that one to two meter scope in some way that amateurs could do and professionals could afford because small institutions are desperate for small observatories to attract students to their colleges, but also just for research time for their astronomers. So this was all coalescing into this. So I thought I'd try these mirrors and just see how far I could get with them before you know, because surely they will fail at some point. The scaling isn't in your favor. Um, and so that's been the path I've been on for many years now. Um, 
because it does take a long time to, to make these mirrors and scopes and then see how they work and refine them and so on and so forth. You, you sort of mentioned something here I want to drill down on um, because we touched on it when we were emailing. And when I was uh, having a beer with Peter Bacure last week, he also mentioned it. So when we emailed, you mentioned designing your scopes for maximum étendue and resolution. And Peter also mentioned this, this philosophy um, for your design. And so I had to look this up. I didn't know what Etundu was. Uh, it says, uh, this is like according to Wikipedia's Grand Dictionary, is a property of light in an optical system which characterizes how spread out the light is, is, an, is an, in an area, an angle. Can you talk about how this works with the eyepiece and seeing those large objects? Right. So Etendu is something that's well known in the professional circles, but somehow doesn't penetrate into the amateur world. And I was searching for an explanation post hoc of how these scopes are giving me these new views I've never had before. Uh, plus what I mentioned earlier, they're getting me to, for the first time, to really look across the field of view and see stuff I haven't seen before. So what's the explanation for this? Well, I eventually came to realize it was simply light throughput. But okay, so what does that mean? Well, if you have a big wide field of view, you can get that object in there um, and it'll be larger in apparent size. Won't you see more in the Orion Nebula if it's twice as big in apparent size in the eyepiece? So you get these monster eyepiece fields of view. And so what are we gonna do then? Well, we've got to pump up that field with all the light that we possibly can. And you're gonna do that by squeezing in as much aperture as you can possibly dare for that focal length. So I have come to see scopes as focal length first and then fill it up with as much aperture as you dare and then put on a low power wide field eyepiece for those high end to do views. That's not to say that I don't use these eyepieces and scopes at high power, I do, um, but um, the, the real thrill, what's new about them is, are these expansive low power fields. And it just starts with making the object as big as possible in apparent size, and then filling up that field of view with as much aperture as you dare that you think you can pull off in, in the mirror. So the reason that I have the six and 10 and 16 and 30 is because I want different fields of view, you know, five degrees to three degrees to two degrees and a one degree on a 30 inch. And yes, I do use a 30 inch at, at high power, but I use a six at low power. And then if I want higher power, why would I go to higher power on a six when I could pull out to 16? And uh, for instance, on the Pleiades with a six inch, I get the entire Pleiades bubble in there. That's the unique view. If I go to the 16, I can't see the entire bubble, but I can't get all the stars in there. And there's a lot to see there and that's a beautiful view. But if I go to the 30, now I don't get all the Pleiades in anymore, but I do see those streaky striations that you can see in uh, digital images. And that is an astonishing view um, with the 30 inch, but it's low power on a six, low power on a 16, low power on a 30. And then only then do I go to high power on a 30 because I don't have that 60 inch scope yet. You know, I'm not Mike Clemens in Salt Lake City with his 70 inch as much as I would. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen that that video is ridiculous right and I love its touch with the American flag hanging off hanging off the end and everything um, you know he is such a marvelous uh, telescope maker and he's such a, a wonderful person 
but uh, I don't have that scope. So then I go off into what I call eyepiece mode for high power. So, you know, I pick the magnification that's appropriate, but yeah, most of the time as I step up in aperture, because I built this sequence of scopes, I do low power until I get to the biggest aperture. So, so that's how into two works. And um, if you take a look, uh, well, we were talking about the ring nebula earlier, you know, what scope size would be ideal for the ring, you know, well, it's like a 200 inch, you know, so you go, oh my gosh, I need aperture and aperture. So this gets back to what uh, some of my friends and I have been working on for many years is trying to figure out how to get more aperture. But in the end, you know, my 30 inch scope is only an 81 inch focal length scope. It's just an 81 inch. It's a uh, is a C8, you know, but with lots of aperture. So, I, I mean, you know, the focal length still with your IP set sets the magnifications. So, you know, it's not like a 30 inch F5, it's a different kind of scope. You know, my scope will struggle to get to, to those higher magnifications. I don't miss that because of seeing and because I can get to medium and relatively high power. I just can't get to those extreme high powers so easily anymore but then it's an 81 inch focal length scope that just happens to have a 30 inch mirror. So that's how I look at it. And that's why these views to me, I've not had before and they're worth pursuing by building these scopes. Hmm. Rather than swapping eyepieces, swap telescopes. I, I like that approach. <laughs> well, yeah. And so, so here's the other thing. Uh, how much do one of these high end eyepieces cost? Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, yeah, they're approaching a thousand dollars US. Well, for a thousand US, I built a 16 inch and most of that money was in the secondary. For 2000, I built the 30 inch and most of that money was in the secondary. So you can trade in one of these eyepieces and build one of these scopes. To me, that's that's a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> that's, I didn't realize it was, I, I didn't know the cost of this, Mel. So that's very interesting. I, I you know, that's that's a very motivating factor to build one for sure. Maybe we can just, uh, we just have a few minutes left, Mel. Maybe we can just touch a little bit on the sketching. During our correspondence, you mentioned having created over a thousand sketches. And just curious, have you always sketched and, uh, or, or have sketches simply complemented your observing logs? So going back as a kid, I have in a box some sketches I made as a little kid, little type, you know, kindergartner and second grader and fourth grader. Apparently I've been drawing rockets and spaceships and sailing ships and submarines from way back when. And uh, luckily this is a podcast, so I can't show people, but they're pretty <laughs> crude, pretty laughable. <laughs> there, there's, there's no skill there. Although I did win an art contest in sixth grade, apparently. But um, yeah, for some reason I just got into drawing. And then when, remember when I was a kid and I was at the uh, downtown library and I came across some of John Herschel's um, pictures or sketches like of the Orion. And it was so methodically done and everything was triangulated and it was just so beautiful with this charcoal on the paper. I thought, oh, I wanna do this because it, it, it was just beautiful in its own way. So um, I began drawing too. And then as, as soon as I began drawing the die piece, I realized, oh, this is helping me observe and see things. Of course, I got to slow down because that's just who I am, but so I have to trade one for the other. So I've always been uh, drawing and sketching. Uh, the other big thing that's happened is that, um, you know, in the light of the next morning that your sketch rarely looks as good as it looks <laughs> through the eyepiece. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's pretty embarrassing and pretty frustrating. So I endeavored to do something about that. So I realized I was building the visual memory of these objects. And so I just at most with a ballpoint pen under the dimmest of red light, make some scratches uh, on a piece of paper, but mostly it's visual memory. And then the next morning, another reason why I only do one or two objects a night, because otherwise my mind would be polluted with too many things, I draw it um, using these markings as a guide, using my visual memory, uh, I draw it out. And then when I'm confused or like, okay, where was the nebula exactly in relation to this triangle of stars I remember, I go back the next night. So my drawing and observing and sketching has evolved. Don't know if it's gotten better over time, but, uh, but I've always been doing it. And uh, it, it's my way of, of, of seeing. And, and as, as I said, it's profoundly influenced the telescopes I build and how I go about doing it all. And again, you kind of spiral off into your own way of doing that. And, uh, and that's what's really cool. What tools are you using? Are you using the uh, white on white chalk pastel on black paper? Or are you inverting your images or how are you doing your sketches exactly? Uh, most of it is charcoal on white. I do do some pastel on black, uh, particularly like Venus. I just uh, did that the other day because I was using my 30 inch with a double blue filter and I, I could see some of the clouds on the uh, lit side of Venus. Um, but Venus was very blue because of the double blue filter. So that really called for pastels on black paper. So I did that. And, um, and sometimes I'll do that. It's really hard to get the dynamic contrast because then you have to get into the acrylic pins and so on to get the stars. And um, it's hard to, uh, to work that way. But I, I think that's probably just my limitation. But I mainly do charcoal on white and then invert it on the computer. Sounds good. So we're just about at, at the end here. We'll get into our concluding remarks. Uh, have we missed anything, Mel? Is, did you have any final thoughts to, to share with our listeners? Uh, well, one main thought, the most important thing is just make it to the eyepiece. Just, just make it to your eyepiece. Don't, don't worry about if you have the best scope or the best eyepiece, just get there and look. Um, if you go from the eyeball to like an eight inch F7, my first serious telescope, that is such a dramatic leap. And I still recommend the eight inch F7 as, as the first all around scope. But the next leap up from that is doing the math real quick. What, a 200 inch? I, I mean, it's okay to have that eight inch. It will fill you for the rest of your life. You don't need that 10 or 12 inch. Just make it to the eyepiece. If you have aperture fever, like I do, um, then sure, go build scopes and have fun doing that. But the most important thing of all is just make it to the eyepiece and look. You're gonna be limited by what the, the gods of this sky give you, you know, in terms of seeing a transparency. And uh, you don't have control over that. So you just go and make the best of it. But you got to get out there to the eyepiece and look. You know, if you're making that telescope, you've got to make it to the mirror and start pushing glass. You know, so, so just get out there and, and do something. Somebody wants to start uh, building telescopes sort of in this vein. Are, are you offering any online courses or, or is there groups that people should uh, consider reaching out to or, or joining to learn some of these techniques? Yes. I think the most important thing is to get with a mentor. And this isn't just true of making a mirror or making a scope. I think it's also true with observing. Just go out with some people 
Uh, I happen to belong to the Oregon Scope Works. It's a, a private email discussion group started by some inventors who wanted a collaborative safe place where they could kick around really wild ideas and not get blasted out of the sky for them. And uh, so uh, we do a lot of discussion there. Uh, I've never seen such mirror making activity as is going on today. Um, it's really hard if you get on a forum and you ask a simple naive question like, well, how do you do this? And so you'll get six replies and they'll start arguing with each other. And that's, we kind of forgotten the person who asked the question. So you need to get hooked up with a mentor and someone who will uh, be able to give you a variety of techniques and approaches and help you in your own way, not in their way necessarily, to, to get to that scope and have that deep satisfaction and have fun making that. So, uh, and if a group doesn't exist, then go form it. You know, that's, that's what we did. Um, you know, groups can only be so big and only encompass so many people. And so uh, go out there and start an island and get, and people will start glomming onto this island and uh, uh, make it a center of self-learning. You know, uh, we don't know as much as we think we do often. And um, the main thing is to go out and do it, make it to the eyepiece, make it to the piece of glass, make it to your table saw. Uh, that's what really counts. So your website is bbastrodesigns.com. Is that the best way for people to follow you and stay up to date on your telescope building and all that? You, you have a lot of resources on there. I'll put it that way, like those calculators and everything. It's a good place for people to go. Yeah, I think I overshare. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Uh, you know, uh, you just want to, you're by yourself and you see something and you just want to yell, come and look at this. And you realize that maybe it's a raccoon and bear. And, uh, you know, they're probably not that interested in the eyepiece. But, but yeah, so you just want to share this stuff. And so I've created all the stuff I use for myself. And then maybe other people will find useful. It's, it's, it's okay either way. But um, yeah, they can go to there and uh, see what I'm doing. But you know, I'm just one person and I move kind of slow, but there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on in the telescope making and observing and sketching world. And there's just wonderful people out there doing this. You just have to kind of track them down and find them and, uh, and, and find there's such a variety and really interesting, cool people from all walks of life uh, excited by this. I really, I really like the way you put that. Shane, do you have anything to add? No, nothing at all. Thank you very much, Mel. It was a great meeting you, and this was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the best thing is you, you two are so far away. If we can ever get together and observe, now, from my selfish viewpoint, you two should come to the Oregon Star Party sometime. <laughs> I think we so. should. I think I, I think agree so. with that. Actually, yep. You I know, think make so. make a wild road trip and make a movie out of it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Mel. We really appreciate having you on. Uh, thanks to the listeners for listening and, and for your support. Uh, uh, we encourage people to uh, follow Mel and subscribe to our show and share it with any other stargazers you know. Thanks for listening. You can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com.